Welcome to Bonehead. We're doing another episode of books. Why are we doing another episode of books? Because we did fiction and now we're doing... I can't even talk. I'm still, I'm still traumatized by the conversation that happened prior to this. Which one? one? What about your mother? <laughs> My mother didn't traumatize you. I heard you had a good time. <laughs> Credits, something, something. Blue, 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 blue. What are we doing this week, Chad? Doing nonfiction. Nonfiction. We actually we didn't have intentions of doing a two-part episode about books. We figured we'd just come back to it later. And I don't know how this will come out in the distribution later on, but did you have cruel intentions? We had we had a really I had a really good time doing the the fiction one. I'm and we, just a man whose I'm intentions just are good. Them ignore them. I had a really good time doing the fiction one, <laughs> and then we all started thinking maybe we'd do a nonfiction one and maybe do more fiction book lighters and laters later, authors different things like that. So, nonfiction books and authors you should read is this month's episode of Cosmo. This month? Did you say Cosmo? Politan bitches. Please don't let me be misunderstood. Neapolitan's a horrible. So ice who cream. wants to go ahead Shut and get started? Mouth. Oh, seriously, you like Neapolitan ice cream? I like variety. Yeah, well, yeah. What's wrong with Neapolitan? It's strawberry, chocolate, and vanilla. Everybody gets to pick what they want. Yeah. Not no, because you scoop it out and you always get some of the other ones. Well, in yeah. There. If you're a philistine, you can't scoop the edges. I'm yeah, sure when you crayoned everywhere, it was all over outside of the. Cut them. When it's still frozen, you can stay, take a butter knife in there and cut them. I mean, I don't do that. I'm okay if a little strawberry or a little chocolate. Who cuts it with a butter? I'm okay if a little chocolate gets in I my bowl. I am too. I just, his, his OCD, I was trying to help him. Spumoni. Mom's a spumoni. I haven't had spumoni since, when was the last time? Spaghetti we were, factory. When was the last time we were at the spaghetti factory? 19 old spaghetti the factory. The old spaghetti factory. Back when I had two working knees. <laughs> Back when you had two working jobs. <laughs> anyway, who wants to go first? Why don't you go first? Okay. So, I No a, one cares, James. <laughs> I had a really... Uh, I, I don't know why it drove me crazy all week going, well, I gotta do Hunter, I gotta do Hunter, I gotta do Hunter. What other authors? What other nonfiction authors? Oh, Joe, you never read nonfiction. And then I started looking at my bookshelf. Who's the guy that started in Hunter? Fred what? Ward. Ward. No. No, no it's Fred not Fred Ward. Ward. It's Fred, Fred Tomlinson. No, Fred, Fred Thompson. Is it Fred Willard? I was gonna do a great hunter joke. Fred Dreyer. Fred Dreyer. Yeah, I didn't know he wrote a lot of books. See, that joke would have been funny if I would have known the actor's name. No. Well, yes, no. yes, no. it would. No. It was hilarious. No. Haley chuckled. Hashtag. Haley is behind the camera shaking her head. No. Hashtag. For our listeners, hashtag out there. she is on the floor laughing. And we will get to Hunter in a second, but I want to start out with. There are a ton of books, nonfiction books, and they're mainly about filmmaking. And I've read them over the years, and I just picked some of the few. Which one should I start with? Well, let's talk about my hero. Orson Welles was a dick. And he's Joe's hero. Yeah, shocker. Orson Welles was a Ultron. Dick. No, not Ultron. Oh, damn. <laughs> Yeah, let's go with that. You know, screw Citizen Kane. No, 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 no. Star, no, was it was Star, Trek, Star Trek the motion picture trailer? Uh, oh, yeah. Orson Welles did the new history record. of the world part one. Also, yeah. We and he will sell no wine before it's time. I'm getting on my phone. Same Orson Welles. He also did uh, those pee ads. Anyway, 
Leave her alone. Orson Welles was a dick. Uh, Orson Welles was a privileged human being, and I'd like to do a whole episode to Orson eventually. When my dude should do that by myself, so I can get through it without having to yell at people. Oh, well, the same oh, way oh, yeah. Are you being hundred... interrupted? Yeah, are are we sucks. not letting you talk? And you got um, you got a little hang up there. No, I don't have a hang up. I oh, couldn't okay. find a three M hook that hanged me up. <laughs> so back to Orson. This is a book that was actually done. Uh, it's an interview with him, and it's Peter Bogdanovich. For you all who don't know who Peter Bogdanovich is, he's a filmmaker, he's a director. He directed The Last Picture Show, which is a classic. He also directed the sequel to Sir With Love, which is a dog turd. So, Unicron! Yes, he's the voice of Unicron. Unicron! There we go. There which go. is just lazy, because it's just unicorn with the R transposed. Quit ruining my childhood! <laughs> Anyway. He had horns. So Peter Bogdanovich did these series of interviews with him over time. Peter Bogdanovich was known, he's kind of like the Chad, James, and Joe of the 70s, in the late 60s. He hung around. He wasn't hate liked by a lot of people. No, but he was a fanboy. He was a fanboy of cinema, and he would hang around these people. And if you look at a lot of history, it was, oh yeah, well, I was hanging with Peter Bogdanovich. Peter Bogdanovich. And he would get to know these older cinema gods. And he became their friends. And <clears throat> he did this series of interviews Much over like quite Judd a few Apatow, times. The Judd Apatow of today. Probably similar. Uh, Judd's probably a little more successful. Well, yeah. And um, Judd didn't have his wife have sex with Elvis Presley. Mm-hmm. Or, apparently, Elvis called him Dogovich. Uh, <laughs> or. No, it was more like. So the story behind this book was is when they did it, later on, Orson, they were going to publish it, and they got some money up front, and Peter had to pay his and Orson's back, because Orson went ahead and spent his money, and then got a better offer to do another autobiography. So he couldn't do this one. So this was actually not published till years later, posthumously, and it's a fascinating book because that means he died and didn't have any say in it. Yeah, posthumously, and it's fascinating because it's a filmmaker talking to a filmmaker. So they already have a kind of an understanding of the language and understanding of how of each of the meanings, and it goes through a lot of it. Orson was famous actually. Because he did all those guest shows, you think about all those things, all the times he was on every, he was even on Dean Martin Roasts. Mm-hmm. You think, oh, Orson talks all the time. He did, but he didn't talk about his movies all the time. In fact, he did not care for talking about his. He would talk about anybody's movies, but he didn't want to really talk about his. And there's a great story in here about him sitting around um, one night, and I, I think it's Hoda was the lady he was with the last few years Smattered of his life. Smattered in vanilla pudding. And, <clears throat> no. Peter Bogdanovich, <laughs> the Magnificent Ambersons comes on the television when they're flipping through and Peter Bogdanovich walks into the room and Orson's crying. And I don't think he addresses it with him, but he asks his lover, I can't remember the lady's name, I think it was Hoda. Oh, he's mad because if you know the story behind the Magnificent Ambersons, uh, it was a movie that was done right after Citizen Kane for uh, RKO. And RK, it was a huge, Citizen Kane was a, not a success whatsoever. It was almost destroyed before it was ever released, and we could do a whole episode on that. But the Magnificent Ambersons was taken from him as he was doing work for FDR for the war, actually. 
and recut and they cut the whole last act out of it and it, and it's just it's not what he intended so peter thought that he was crying because of the cut of the movie and she said no he's crying because he that was the best time check it out this is orson welles one of my favorite nonfiction books well, go, James, go. There's nothing funny there, sorry. No, well, I was going to say, going off of somebody that... Washed up and dead at 24. Going out off of somebody that's obsessed with film and kind of doing their biography that way. If you've never read Silver Screen Fiend, Patton Oswalt, um, and this is actually uh, another book he did, Zombie uh, Spaceship Wasteland, that's nonfiction. Uh, he does essays and things like that. But Silver Screen Fiend is all about his obsession with movies and how it literally cost him relationships, uh, caused him to have a lot of problems. He actually... So the, the story that he tells in this was he got started as a ticket taker in a theater. And he used to make extra money by selling Before stuff. Before he was a comedian, I'm assuming. Yeah. Okay. That is yeah. somebody who would actually take your ticket. Yeah, well... but That's he, my contribution. He would sell it and take and rip it. But he made extra money by the bird. good. And Put he, this together. He sold stuff. <laughs> I don't have the puzzle to reach to you, but you know the scene. <laughs> so he, he would make extra money by selling the stubs. In other words, you would rip it. The next person would come along. You'd sell them a ticket going, don't worry, I've already ripped it. And you'd give it to them. Nobody was really watching him, so he would just pocket that money. And it was standard practice how back you, when you did. How do you know to do that? How do you know to walk up to the guy and make that offer? No, no. He, he didn't save the customer any money. Oh. Customer comes up, says, buy the ticket. He's also the usher. He goes, go on in. I got you. And he would split with whoever was working the concession stand. So they would be, and this, this is the next person would be, oh, here's your stub. I got you. Go on in. And they would pay full price, too, and they would split the money. And then that. So basically, they would report that they sold half the amount of tickets that they actually sold. Oh, so he was working with the guy at the box yeah. office. Okay. Yeah. I was confused. No, no, he uh, was the guy at the box up. It was a small theater in Virginia near outside DC. Anyway. He just kept saying rip it, so I just thought of a chain of people farting. <laughs> anyway, it then it chronicles <laughs> moving out to um LA and those great old film move houses yeah. they out there that showed classic films. And he talks about his first role in um Down Periscope. Uh, oh yes, it was down Periscope. And he, he, his role got he's, cut. He's, well, he's in it, and it actually details why it got cut. The reason it got cut was he got offered a a gig to do something else that he was sure was going to take off. And he says in the parts of the movie that he's in, you'll see they they win at the end. He's in the background, and he and they uh, somebody says something like, "You need to go check on." He walks out, and the reason he does that, the director. He was so afraid it was going to ruin his, the director's relationship with him. But he went and he goes, I got this offer. And he goes, yeah, now we'll, we'll, we'll write you off. Not, no big deal. You'll do the final scene. We'll do the celebration. And then I'll just send you off. And he goes, that's exactly what happens. And he said, I was so certain that it was going to be, oh, you broke your contract. You did. He goes, no. And nobody ever points out, wait a second. They win. They celebrate. And you're never seeing the rest of the movie. Yeah. Um, but he walks. By the way, Down Periscope, best submarine movie ever. Uh he is. <laughs> Have you seen the Hunt for Red October? What's How that? About... I think there's a ton what of other the ones. the Clark Gable gonna... one? Yeah, I was gonna say I'm not. I'm not even gonna humor. Is nobody um, gonna bring up Das Boot? You know, I've actually never seen it. Neither have I. 
Really? I've seen it. Um, I saw a Wolf King Peterson God, film. I've never shocker, seen it. James watched a German film. Uh, but Patton, <laughs> he does, he goes through the I was entire, a little bit of a shocker, but these are <laughs> private jokes. He, uh, he, Chase it! <laughs> he goes through the entire thing talking about, and he details his life compared to what movies he's watching. And he still has notebooks where he's like, watch this movie, here's my comments on it from when he actually did this. The other book that he wrote, Zombie Spaceship Wasteland, if you were a geek in high school, this is the nonfiction for you. Um, because it's kind of a series of essays, but he goes through his own kind of story. Um, and I love the zombie... So basically, the zombie spaceship wasteland, uh, he argues that no matter what you were in high school, you wanted to fall under one of those categories. You're either a zombie that was just trying to get through, uh, you, you wanted out, that was your spaceship, or you just viewed the future as a wasteland and you were just you were nihilistic about it. What if you were all three? Yeah. Well, and that's what he talks about. He goes, and then there's those people that literally kind of code switch between. Because I wanted out. I was trying just to get through. Well, um, I'm probably a little less that, but I wanted out so bad. But both I of these, he wrote the uh, Silver Screen Fiend, I think, first. I should have looked this up. Um, and it was popular, and they said, can you tell us more remembrances of what it was like to be you and be a geek and be into movies? Please print us more was. money dollars. Yeah. Um, but both of these, if you like films, since you started with Orson Welles, these are, are littered with allusions to things, but you can also tell he has a legitimate passion. And he talks about, uh, kind of like if you watch our Chris Alexander episode, when he's talking about, and I'm forgetting the director, he's the director that was... Um, a disciple of, oh, did he work with Wells? Made the obscure Franco. Yeah, he talks about Franco in this, and he about seeing it at midnight and just thinking, what would have that been like if you had no? Because he says one of the problems is these classic films. You you know them, and he said, can you? What Franco film was classic? There's a lot of porn in there. Well, he he talks about seeing midnight showings and stuff like that, yeah. and he talks about trying to break into stand up comedy and working. And then literally cutting his, his bit short sometimes just so he'd get in the car and make it to a midnight showing. And he said, I was ruining my career because I was obsessed with film. There, If you like film or if you're a geek, either one of these are worth your time. Okay. Cool. Chad? Joe? Fascinating, <laughs> Chad. Well, we'll stay with movies for a few more minutes. Dude. Yeah. I just don't read a lot of, I don't read a lot of nonfiction. You just don't read? No, I read. I just don't read a lot of nonfiction. I prefer my nonfiction through oratory or visual. That's how I absorb it. All I heard I have was you time... preferred oral. Oh, so uh, uh, so you're <clears> probably <throat> more of a visual learner, where or or an oral learner, more over than a read-write learner. When it comes to nonfiction, yeah, like I can absorb if I'm listening if to it. This a... turns into an education discussion. No, I'm just saying if I if if I can I'm sit down to a doc, I can watch it. I can sit down and watch. Oh God, let's turn this into an mm. educational conversation. He said he'd leave. And burning down his Ken Kia. Burns, like for example, I watched all of it's Ken Burns. full coverage. I will, I will give you fifty bucks to cover it. <laughs> <laughs> how much? How long? Uh, there's nine parts to Ken Burns baseball. I don't know. I didn't watch all that shit. I don't even like baseball. I watched it in one day. I've listened to every single podcast. You're also I've done, for punishment. But, but nonfiction. I just I can't read non. I don't absorb information that well through nonfiction. Now that so, we've so go on with your your boring ass crap. <laughs> now that we've established Chad can't read, <laughs> that's the user read listening. So for you Star Trekky people out there, I thought I would bring one of my favorite books about Star Trek. Nicholas Meyer wrote The View from the Bridge. Whoever took the picture on that cover is stupid. Hold on, no, no that. 
picture is in perfect clarity. Is your vision going again, Chad? <laughs> it don't win. <laughs> the view from a bridge is memorable. Why the Star hell Trek. is Wilford Brimley on the cover of a Star Trek book? I'll put two things together with this. Nicholas Meyer would made the best Star Trek film. This really isn't an argument as far as I'm concerned. Oh, no, no. Wrath of Khan. He also, though, he's he's a big geek. Uh, obsessed yeah, with Sherlock Holmes. He's a she- yeah, he's a different kind of geek. He's not yeah. a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. H.G. Wells. He, he did and, a movie called Time After Time, which you should check out. What you uh, talks about 7% in here? 7% Solution. 7% Solution is... Which is... Is that him? He did the Great Train Robber, maybe. Oh my God, my mind Great is Train Robber. That was Michael Crichton. Michael Crichton oh, directed. What else did he do? Great well, Train here, Robber. Here, here, let me... I'll oh, make sure. anyway. You go about your business. Let me go I'll about my book. business. I'll, I'll so, he did... He did the he, notebook. He wrote... <laughs> That's Nicholas Sparks. You know, he did write Summersby. Oh, you serious? Yeah. Wow. Did write Summersby. Huh. Just saying. It's not a bad movie. I don't know why I thought of the notebook. <laughs> he the wrote the novel that became the film 7% Solution. He okay. actually wrote the novel, because I know it's by him, because I've got the book. Yeah, he's very geeky. He doesn't like rock and roll. That's the reason there's a scene in Star Trek Four when Spock reaches over, and Nick, that's yep. that Nicholas Meyer wrote that, because he didn't care for rock and roll, listens to classical music. He wrote and directed Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. He would then later on, they asked him to come he back to the... He elevators th- all day long. He, they asked him to come back and do the third one which is the search for Spock, and he wouldn't do it because he said we just killed off Spock. That was the whole point. And then he was fine once they brought him back. He was like, I can do more after that. I just refused to do the story, yeah. which actually made logical sense to me. So he wrote him and who was the producer on all those? Oh, um... Yeah, he wrote 50% of the Voyage Home, which What's is... What's Harv Bennett, wasn't it? Harv Bennett. Harv it's Harv Bennett. He wrote Dude, 50% of that with Harv Bennett. And then he went on to do probably another one of the great Star Trek films. He wrote and directed, or he directed The Undiscover, uh, Undiscovered Country, which is a, it's a sleuth. It's a Sherlock Holmes mystery in itself. So, The View from the Bridge now is partially about Star Trek, partially about his career, partially about, he has a great story in here about talking about what a dick Gene Hackman was. Working with Gene Hackman and several different things you should try. I also wrote and directed uh, The Volunteers. Oh. Yeah. Speaking of Orson Welles, he also um, wrote The Night That Panicked America, which is a te- retelling of War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds. But before, I'm going to do two quick ones, though. The other one is one of my favorite filmmakers, Sidney Lumet. And he wrote this book called Making Movies. Now, Sidney Lumet directed 12 angry men he directed dog day afternoon he directed the verdict the ver- i just had to do it to you i'm sorry i had to i couldn't help myself uh, <laughs> we had a long conversation about the verdict the other day we're the only two people in america who had a long conversation the other day about, about the even the people that worked on the verdict didn't have a long conversation well, paul though. newman's dead and so sydney lumet but anyway yeah, dog but day afternoon serpico and one of my favorite films of all time, Network. Okay? Sidney Lumet served in World War II, fought for his country. And he actually, it's very much a, this is how I made movies in the sense of he actually will take you through his day. He explains as he got older how he would do a 30-minute nap at lunch and how he learned in World War II how to fall asleep right on command when he could get it. Right. And something he kept with him his entire life. If you get a chance and you're really into movies and you're probably 23 or 22 years old and you're like, I want to make movies and you don't know jack shit, read Cindy Lumet's book and before you do that or while you're doing that, check out some of his movies too. 
12 Angry Men Network. Uh, I'm not going to do Find Me Guilty. We'll talk about that later. Oh, it's so good. It is so good. Sitting in the mat's a genius. James, I just All wanted right. to do two quick. Well, no, I'm, I'm going to go a little bit old school. So, um... The Bible? No, we're, we're doing nonfiction. Uh, we just oh, lost subscribers. Oh. I just cost us subscribers. We're I just kid, the atheists. Right? I kid. I kid. Didn't I um, put a good book in front of that? You did. And <laughs> and by the way, weird. this is a good book. Um, so these are the autobiographies. There's only one playing. good book. You only need one pill. <laughs> the the gospel. I kid. I kid. <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, so, this is the autobiography of Mark Twain. Uh, this is volume two. <laughs> Should not be that thick. Volume one is just as thick. Volume three is just as thick. Volume two. He was born. He was on a boat. Grew a beard. Wrote some books. Died. <laughs> lost a lost, bunch of money. Uh, hung out with Tesla. Made a lot of more money. Yeah. Lost more money. Lost yeah. his family. His wife and his daughter died. Still had that beard. Um, Mustache. You know that's a, it's a that's that's another that's Ken Burns, right? What the, the the documentary about him? Did he do a Mark Twain documentary? Everybody everybody should do a Mark Twain because it's, Mark Twain's insane. Um, and, and what I was going to say about this, so there, if you look at an autobiography, mustache. If you look at the autobiography of Mark Twain, if it came out before about four years ago, it's not complete. Best portrayal of Mark Twain, Vanilla Ice. I'm going to punch what? you. What? In what? Ridiculous six. Al Holbrook. <laughs> Al Holbrook made a career doing Mark Twain. <laughs> this, I mean, the, he did other stuff. That literally happened. Yeah. It's in an Adam Sandler movie, Vanilla Ice played Mark Twain. Of course he did. And he talked like Vanilla Ice. Of course he did. To reference our last episode, uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, when you have an infinity drive, any BFE thing can happen. All right. Y'all done now? No. Yep. I'm just um, pissed that that happened in history. <laughs> um, Why do I have to live in that reality? Mark Twain, when he uh, was writing his autobiography, he got Stupid paid... Stupid multiverse. <laughs> he got paid multiple times to write it. Uh, at one point, one of my favorite quotes about it is, uh, at one point he was approached by, I believe it was Harper's Magazine, mm -hmm. to write autobiography, and they wanted to do it, you know, snippets of it. Yeah. And he met with them... And he had the, his final quote is, Sir, I don't think that's going to happen. For you see, readers are the ones that edit magazines. <laughs> and he was he was afraid that not enough people would be interested and it'd never finish. So, he started and quit his autobiography about 15,000 times. And if you buy these books, they are crazily detailed because the deal he finally made was that nobody could publish his complete autobiography till he had been dead 100 years. Because he literally wanted to do a tell-all, and he did not want to damage anybody's reputation. What about all that horse shit he said about Aunt Sue? He did. Uh, well, here's what you have to think. I now, mean, when we're talking about fiction, off. one of the Dear things... Martha, I got a cracker stuck in my mustache this morning. When <laughs> oh you said cracker, I thought of a white person. Oh, my God. Why won't this cracker get out of my mustache? Oh, you saltine. Get out of my mustache, cracker. What was his name, Greeley? What was that? The... Horace Greeley? Horace Greeley, yes. He, he, talks about, I, 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 he talks about meeting him one time and about how they hated each other. Or he said, I did not know the gentleman. And he looked at me and he goes, what do you need? And he was supposed to be meeting somebody for dinner. And he said, I'm looking for a gentleman. And Horace Greeley just yelled at him, we don't have those here. <laughs> 
There you go. Um, but. Why did I know who Horace Greeley was? This entire, so there are three volumes, and yes, it is very, very dense. Parts of it are extremely funny, parts of it are extremely tragic. I he fell does. in the outhouse this morning, <laughs> and there was a cracker underneath <laughs> there. The, and uh, there. I was like, cracker, what are you doing down here? He, he and talks. there I found my puppy Jonas. <laughs> Next to a cracker. Um, it turned out it was a big turd. <laughs> Roger Ebert said that, that uh, this he don't say nothing. Well, he said before he died that he, he, said he didn't say anything job. before he died either. Well, just keep going. Roger Ebert wrote shortly before he died that people that you couldn't put these things down once you got into the tone of them. Uh, the problem with it is it's not linear. He talks about whatever he wants to talk about when he wants to talk about. It. I got But the reason the I wanted to talk about uh, <laughs> Mark Twain. Uh, the autobiography is um, he carried Ace Ventura. <laughs> that, in all honesty, when we were talking about fiction, I didn't talk about it a lot. No. But the classics that I like are Poe and Twain, and oddly enough, a lot of Southern writers. Uh, I thought he was going to say Southern rockers. Hawthorne and all those can suck it. Uh, Melville, screw him. Um, you were, but you were saying about your Marshall Tucker the, man. The the flip side of this is you did make a comment about how all the horrible things he said about Aunt Sue or whoever. If you even read the edited version, he hated most other authors. He hated Poe. He hated Jane Austen. Why did he hate Poe? Because he, he was a I hack. Mean, nobody, nobody likes Jane Austen, but why did he hate Poe? I mean, nobody he thought Poe... 12-year-old um, ladies like Jane Austen. Why does there... What, what, what's, what did Poe did to him? He thought that Poe... deserved um, being a highlight magazine. He uh, thought that Poe uh, just embellished too much and took a thousand words to say what could be said in five. Yeah, how many pages is that? How many um, volumes? No, here's the three volumes. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay. For the complete unedited. Can you tell me how much Margaret Mitchell wrote there? Oh, uh, see, the references. Oh, no, you did oh, it! It There's about 700 pages a piece. So oh. it's about three volumes. Uh, now, there are no Margaret Mitchell. James, have you read all three volumes? I don't have the third volume yet. I haven't picked it up yet. It's oh, heavy. Oh, sinner. Um, he can't physically pick it up. Um, but I, I do love Mark Twain, and if you know anything about Mark Twain, Mark Twain had a complicated relationship with everything. He uh, he, he grew up relatively well-to-do, so his family did have slaves, but he was also against it, but he also benefited from it. You can do an entire analysis of his views on religion. Uh, he never mentions, or at least in Volume 1, he never actually uses the term God. He refers to Providence with a capital P. And he does a lot of analysis of how, what he thought about when he was a I kid. I do too. Every time I go to didn't Rhode he have Island, to go, like, didn't he have to travel to the West because somebody was going to kill him based on something he wrote? Am I making that up? He basically went west during the Civil War. I thought cause um, he, I thought he wrote something about somebody. And else. he went to South America. And it's funny. Uh, in Volume One, he talks about going to South America, and he literally says the way they went up. He had went out to California. Yeah. Um, around the time of the Civil War, and there was a newspaper out there that was doing relatively well. And he said, and he said, I met with the gentleman that ran it, and he names him. And he said, I vaguely remember going, and they said, what would you like to write about, dear boy? And he said, I've heard that, that, that there are some islands near South America that are particularly interesting. And he said they picked one other guy and sent him to Cuba, and he got killed by the Spanish. They picked me and sent me to a tropical island, and I had to send back letters about what was going on. So I was like, we were rock coconuts today. <laughs> Dear Martha, I, I got know. bit by a mosquito the size of a Cadillac. I got all the way down trust here me, and found Martha, another cracker that... by mustache. <laughs> and trust but, me, Martha, that um, analogy will make sense a hundred years from now. 
but anyway, no, I don't think so. Mark Twain. The, what's also great about it is uh, if you want to see somebody that lived through the Civil War, lived through the invent of the publishing, uh, as we know it if today. If you want to see him, you're going to have to go back in time. He Ain't talks a lot. What? No, what's what? ridiculous six? Where he lost a lot of money. Oh, of course. Um, where he lost a lot of money. That's how Houdini died, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, he ain't Houdini. Um, oh, yeah? He lost a lot of money on, on printing technology. Yeah, he lost a lot of money on a lot of different things. But He's printing, a terrible investor. In the, in the first person. book, uh, in volume one, he'll talk about in detail that basically somebody sold him on this typeset idea, and it worked. The only problem is it couldn't be mass-produced, and he had invested... I mean, literally, that was when he lost his first fortune. But Twain is... is you he get got it. those royalties from Ridiculous Six. He's fine. But Mark, real quick, can I add, and yeah. this is that Mark Twain made most of his money speaking. Yes. Later yeah. in life. Yeah. That's where he made his there fortune. There is another book. His later is fortune If later. you look at this and you don't want to hear Twain talk about Twain, there's because another book. Because he made, book. what, three or four fortunes to speak yes. that he lost, correct? Yes. Uh, Twain wrote another book. Uh, or did not Twain. They wrote another book about Twain that came out recently. Um, and if you just search Mark Twain stand-up, there is a book that argues that he was the first touring stand-up comedian. Um, and if you look at... Uh, because he went to England and did it. He, he yeah. traveled the world doing it. Um, and it, the subject of that is that that was how he finally ended up, you're right, saving his career. Um, because he kept losing money and the other thing about it is, as we've talked about before, when we talked about Poe and some other stuff and Dickens and all that for the Christmas special, there was no international copyright law. You Dickens. had local, but you didn't have international. So you literally could take a book in America, and I could take this to England and just say, no, I wrote this, or I want this published, and they would pay me and not the author. Yeah. So. Dickens, Dickens did the same thing. That's how he came to America to make mm -hmm. money. Yeah. He came here in the speaking tours. Like, uh, yeah, which is... And they used to be... You have to kind of understand that they were the rock stars of their time. They really were, too. yeah. Like, you know, when you, people were literate, which makes some sense because most one of the country was illiterate. One of the greatest... Well, that's why they went to reading stuff. And one of the stories that he does tell in Volume 1 that actually is kind of funny was he said uh, he, was, he went with another uh, author and they were doing this big thing and it was packed. And he couldn't... They, he, they had arrived. The train was late. So they ran there, and when they got there, the guy that was taking money at the door said, uh, you need to go in. And he said, "I was there was a crowd, so I was trying to be polite. I leaned in and I said, pardon me, sir, but we're the speakers. And he said, the gentleman then reared back and screamed for all the crowd to hear, I've already let in four speakers. The next one's going to pay. <laughs> because you didn't know what these people looked, looked like. like. So he said, finally, he said, just to calm him down, I paid my entrance to my own lecture. Hmm. Um, so there's a lot of funny stories. There is a lot of sad, uh, sad stuff. He talks a lot about his family and stuff like that. That's pretty good looking. Mark Twain, right? Mark Twain. Yeah, uh, yeah. The tattoos kind of throw it off. Yeah, yeah. I'm showing Joe a, a picture of uh, If you're listening to us on the iTunes or the SoundCloud, Chad has gotten a new tattoo. The How Holbrook. It's a red dragon um, one. And he's retired now, and so if you wanted to see it, you missed it. But Hal, up Mark Twain, telling you. Best portrayal. Hal Holbrook uh, did Mark Twain Tonight for years and did very much what you'll read in these books, too, his performance. Yeah, Vanilla Twain, Twain, baby. Okay, moving right along. I hope Polly Shore <laughs> plays FDR in every movie from now until the I don't time. care. I'll empty it Roosevelt, man. Ha! Well, that's all right, because Fran Drescher's going to play. Yeah, I can deal with that. 
She was great mannequin. I'm gonna take this hill. She was great mannequin. Alright, so dresser mannequin? Yeah. She was his uh, girlfriend. UHF. Her her best role for UHF. <sighs> That's probably true. Callet. So we're gonna jump from movies, even though this is the obviously the movie version. Trying to scrounge up another buck after Fear and Loathing was made into a film. We're going to talk about Hunter S. Thompson. Now, I've talked about several different books here. Uh, James reads a lot of nonfiction authors. I've probably read a lot of nonfiction books, but not specifically any authors except for this guy. Hunter S. Thompson was a journalist who was from Louisville, Kentucky. Why did he leave Louisville, Kentucky? Because he wanted to have a career. career. Uh, there's actually there's a sex thing too going on that uh, he was a, isn't there a big quote that's a, he said how do you get famous get the f out of Kentucky he does but he he almost went to jail for uh, I don't know all the details but it's pretty sure she's either I don't I I should have looked it up beforehand okay but yes there was there's a crime he's also trying to escape as well when he's leaving well Kentucky. that's what not, that's nothing shocking about no Hunter's no Thompson. not if you know Hunter. So, Hunter S. Thompson coined the term gonzo journalism. Hunter S. Thompson wrote for many different uh, periodicals, the most famous probably being the Rolling Stone, who put up with him for the most part. And he wrote several different books, one of which his most famous is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. If you're watching this, if you've never read the book and only seen the Johnny Depp movie, it's probably... Three quarters to eighty percent good adaptation. Yeah. What do you all think? I say there's have you have you guys ever read Fear and Loathing? Nope. I have read Fear and Loathing. Okay. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's the thing, and I don't like. <clears throat> I know it seems like we did this a little bit last episode, but I do want to talk about the movie because Hunter was still alive. Hunter was on. Hunter's in the movie. Hunter's in the movie. Yes. So. And Johnny Depp lived with him. Johnny Depp lived in his basement until he and he lived in Wood, Wood Creek, Colorado. Yep. And a Owl Creek, sorry, Owl Creek, uh, Colorado, till the day he died. And till the day he died, as far as I know, from every documentary, everything I've read, he still referred to that room in the basement as Johnny's room. And he called they called Johnny Depp the Colonel or something like that. They called I think they called each other the Colonel. Yeah. Johnny Depp. So, this quick story about Hunter S. Thompson. He wanted a, when he died, he owned all these acreages out in Colorado, somewhere outside of Aspen. And when he died, he wanted a huge, big hand with two thumbs and a middle finger, right? Yeah. And it was going to blow. I'm sorry I'm not flipping off the audience. If you can't see me, you're listening on iTunes. Hand, two thumbs, one thumb on each side, middle finger, and it was going to blow. And his ashes would be spread right. all across. If you know anything about Johnny Depp and his and his money troubles, Johnny Depp paid for that yeah, after right. he was dead. Johnny's the one that paid for that, and they actually did it. And you could go online and watch the footage of Hunter being blown all across his acreage. Yeah, right. That's just really quick to show you what kind of relationship they had. They lived together. They were friends for years. Uh, later on. The one book that he wrote that was fiction, The Rum Diaries, was made into a movie that no one saw, starring... Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp. The other person who played Hunter S. Thompson that many people, if you've ever seen the Johnny Depp version, would be... Bill Murray. Bill Murray, the, Bill Murray where the Buffalo Rum. Where the Buffalo Rum. With uh, the Peter character that uh, uh, Benicio Del Toro plays. Is played Dr. By, Gonzo. Played by uh, Peter Boyle. Yeah, Dr. Gonzo. One of God's own prototypes. <laughs> 
never meant for mass production. So he's he's a poet, and he's a journalist, but he was one of the first people to look at, or probably one of the first, first modern journalists to look at not really trying to get rid of their point of view. So if you, Chad and I both went to broadcasting school, our degrees are in communication, that's kind of the first thing you hear, you know, you got to do, you got to not, you don't put your point of view, you've got to, you know, you're looking yeah. for journalism, you're looking for the truth, right? Well, he said, screw it, my point of view is there and I'm going to express my point of view. And there's several people who have taken that from that point on. I can't remember the famous. Yeah, of course, modern, 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 modern journalism. Well, there's yeah, but there's actually, there. there's some good, well, let's not go all Trump on the show. Well, but uh, I was about to say, but he did create a new form of journalism that hadn't really been, no. nobody had messed it. around with it since really maybe Capote? Probably. Truman in the, in, in the a, sense of living it. Yeah. Um, because Truman Capote invented was, the true crime novel. Yes. Don't you think? And, oh, and say, no and, question. And he was, and that, I mean, there's people and there's movies made about should Capote, I mean, Capote's flavor and his views on that story. I mean, In Cold Blood, as dark as the day is, but... Yeah, he developed it, a relationship with those men. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and Whether it was probably, anything, yeah. yeah, but probably the only... Th- Hunter S. Thompson's probably the only one that just said, yeah, it happened and I'm going to run with it. And yeah. that's a new form of... So, if you get a chance, read Fear and Loathing. If you're into politics, I don't have a copy of it here. Well, first, let me... I'll talk about... Since I do have Hell's Angels for our people watching. Hell's Angels, he lived with the Hell's Angels for over a year and rode with them. And towards the end of the book, they beat the shit out of them. Right. Bad. Right? Bad. Yep. Um, Hunter pissed off a lot of people. Hunter was not an easy human being to get along with. Hunter was an expert marksman and was crazy with guns. He would he would do such games as John Cusack, the actor. Different famous people would show up and hang out with him for a while. John Cusack talked about the first time he met him. Was, he, um, he said, well, what are we going to do? He goes, well, do you, do, you like, uh, do you like golf? Yeah. Do you like shoot? Yeah. I mean, they would they'd shoot golf and shoot him down drunk. Yeah. What were you going to say? I'd say one of my favorite Hunter S. Thompson stories that I heard before he died was he became a cultural figure in and of himself as much as he wrote about other ones. And, and he hated it and he loved it. And there was a, somebody had scheduled an interview, had got permission, had met him at his place. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, uh, and the, I forget, it was a relatively well-known journalist. And uh, he got there and, and Hunter S. Thompson... Cigarette, all that stuff. Met him more or less on the porch or whatever, on the deck, and said, "Ah, yeah, I want to do that, but yard sure does need mode." It was more of an atrium. And sure enough, another journalist was scheduled to interview him later. Pulls up, and there's this famous journalist mowing, mowing this area of the yard. Yeah. And uh, he gets out, and he goes, "What? Why is he doing that?" And he goes, "Oh, I told him he had to do that. Come on, let's get this over with." And did the interview with the other guy mowing still. Uh, That—that's Hunter. Yeah. His wife, his second wife, the one that he left, that he died, made a widow when he committed suicide, said he was a, he was a southern gentleman, you know, but when he was straight and when he wasn't pissed, and if he didn't consider somebody rude, that he was. He was a southern gentleman. I, I, there's a documentary these two ladies made in the 90s, and I can't remember the name of it. And they spent two weeks with him. They, that, not all of their documentaries about that. It's really talking about America, and they had to spend two weeks because. And you got to remember, at the time, specifically in the last 30 years, you were if you were famous, you wanted to party with Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson. <clears throat> because yeah. everybody partied with Hunter S. Thompson. And it's a story. 
It's a story. A story. It's, it's very similar to probably Harlan Ellison in that, in yeah. that you have a story. Because when James and I met Harlan Ellison that weekend when we left, James was giddy. And actually, I was happy, too. Yeah. We had a couple of good stories, stories. that we're going to take with us to our graves. Yeah, I never got to meet Hunter. He's truly someone I admire quite a bit, whom I'm sure I would have hated if I'd known. Yeah, yeah. How's that sound? Yeah. If you like this, I I really need to really highly recommend, if you're into politics, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72. He followed around Nixon, McGovern, uh, Muskie through the whole through the whole primary at that time. you got to remember where the country was in the middle of Vietnam. Uh, Nixon was escalating Vietnam when he said he was going to get us out four years earlier. He was going out through Cambodia. He was bombing Cambodia, which is a whole other thing. Look up your history books, by the way. Uh, people were mad, but Nixon was still very popular. Yeah. Very popular. And he hated Nixon. Hated, hated Nixon. Hated Nixon. Also didn't care for Bill Clinton, by the way. FYI. Actually, I don't know that he's been a huge fan of any president in the last 30 years. He really liked Jimmy Carter. I don't know what he felt about Jimmy Carter. That's a good one. But anyway, George McGovern, he was a huge fan of George McGovern. And George McGovern got his ass kicked that election. And George McGovern was probably one of the more progressive candidates that we've had in the last 50 years. Probably him and Bernie Sanders. And George McGovern and he were, were pals and he... Uh, Hunter admired him, and McGovern said about the book, it is the most inaccurate, accurate representation of the campaign trail he's ever read. Yeah. So please, if you get a chance, you're into politics, fear and loathing on the campaign trail 72. I don't have it up here. I have a smaller version. James. Um... I'm going to end with Ellison, so I'm going to go ahead and do... I, I knew it. I love being the moderator. Joe. I, James. I'm going to do... James. Joe. Klosterman. Butter. Toast. So Chuck Klosterman. I have some like pork jelly that's really good. Um, <laughs> pork jelly? Port. Maybe oh, with pork. Oh, pork. Wine. Okay, oh, like, pork jelly. Ugh. Chuck Klosterman is more pork or less an good. essayist. Uh, and I love his books because they're essays and they jump all over the place. Uh, he it. I, I wear the black hat. I thought he was going to talk about Hunter. Yeah, I mean, or, or uh, no, that's what I'm going to end on. I've got, Where are we at? Um, okay, well, <laughs> I've got to get Chuck Klosterman out here. Go, um, James, go! By the way, Haley just gave him an evil look. In my ear. Um, Will you stop stuttering and go? It's not. He does dramatic pauses. Chuck Klosterman <laughs> writes essays where he uses historical information, but also pop culture information. My favorite one is I Wear the Black Hat, uh, which examines villainy. Uh, and... Uh, in this book, it talks about how if you want to look at real villainy as far as pop culture, um, Seinfeld, they're evil people. They're absolutely villains. Yeah. Um, but also, he does some real historical analysis about how our language changed. Um, he talks about when he wrote the book and told his friends he was going to write a book on villainy, they said, well, you've got to talk about Hitler. And he said, well, I don't want to talk about Hitler. And he says, you've got to talk about Hitler. And then he changed his mind. He went back to those same friends. Okay, I'm going to have to write about Hitler. You can't write about Hitler. Because he also does things with kind of a comic twist. And one of the things that he points out that I think is really interesting, which is just a sign of what his essays kind of look like, is Hitler changed the face of evil. If you read fiction, nonfiction, all of that stuff, when you used to decry somebody as being the ultimate evil... They were the devil. Now it's you're worse than Hitler. And he argues that we are now 
in a in a thing where our language has changed because of history and because of news media. So he does a big analysis of all the stuff. His stuff's really well researched. He's written for all sorts of magazines. Um, he's got another book called Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, where he looks at addictions and all of that stuff. Cocoa Puffs are overrated. But he's written for GQ. He's written for Esquire. He's written for uh, Spin, Washington Post, ESPN. Um, he is not Hunter S. Thompson, who also wrote a lot for ESPN near the end. Yeah, he wrote um, uh, for everyone. Yeah. It's just he is forever entwined with Rolling but, Stone. Um, but uh, Klosterman is not as dynamic a personality, but his insights and his ability to say, let's look at something that happened in 1842, and I'm going to tell you how it's going to affect how you eat breakfast in the morning. He does that so well, and it's, it's entertaining. It's at times really funny. Uh, the Seinfeld one I photocopied for people. Sorry, Chuck. I'll give you, send you a quarter. Um, but it's the, he, he has a ton of these books. Uh, I've got one in the trunk of my car that actually I got signed, um, and I left it in the trunk. Um, but his books are you get the children out of the trunk. They they cover all sorts of topics. But if you want one to start with, I do recommend I wear the black hat. They're still in the trunk. It um, midgets and onesies don't count as children. If you uh, it, what the hell do I got? <laughs> If you take, it takes a little bit to get used to his style, but once you do, he is insightful and alternatingly hilarious. Uh, I still say start with Patton Oswalt, but he's a close second because he just pulls data. That's fascinating. Time. Why didn't I name my son Horace? Uh, Where did Horace go? How about Beauregard? It's eh, too many syllables. Beauregard, that was a good day. Ghost good. fever, baby. Horace. Horace. I don't, it's, it's too it, Greek, right? No, Egyptian. I'm not racist, so that's not a problem Probably. for me no, like Horace. it is you, James. Horace. All right, there's you two books here I've got left. No, but go ahead. We're going to go quick because I know he wants 20 minutes to spend on Best Carlin. Chicago Bull ever, Horace Grant. Uh, if you're a friend of mine and you see me, if you're a friend of mine and you're interested, ask me. And if you see me at cons and you want to talk about Sam Fuller, that's great. Uh, because Sam Fuller, I believe, is one of those directors that's forgotten in history. And he wrote a book called The Fourth Face. Yeah, the Third a, Face. He was always hungry, though. The Third Face. <laughs> he actually uh, wrote and directed The Big Red One. It's based on his real life. Mark Hamill played him. Mm. So, anyway, Big check red. that out. Mm. I want to end on John Cleese. Because the one thing, well, there's only about a half a dozen things that all three of us have in common. And one of them is Python. 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 Anaconda. Don't want none, uh, hon. This is... You got bun, hon. Several of them have written books. I tried... And Eric Idle just announced his, by the way. Always look on the bright side. We'll come out. I hope it's better than his other book because I couldn't finish it. Well, I'm just... No, I'm just letting you know. So I'm not actually going to recommend all the Python books. Uh, now we can't retweet this and tell Eric Idle. Thank you for that, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> you can. Yeah, well... I just—he's like he's gonna like he's gonna watch it. Like he's gonna lentil. Like he's gonna lentil watch it. So anyway, this is only Dell's right through the '80s. He's actually gonna write a second one. So if you're interested in Python and one of the many of the one of the remaining, uh, uh, check it out, James. Uh, I'm gonna get into Ellison. What you're gonna bring up some? No, I'm, I'm talking about this for three seconds. Joe Walton is somebody that writes uh, tons of books. No shit. All three of us did it. Writes tons of science fiction <laughs> books and is a well-known author in her own right. But she wrote a book called What Makes This Book So Great, 
Uh, and if I, I mentioned Ursula K. Le Guin and all of uh, the people, Octavia Butler, she also is who normally gets called. Uh, she has worked with Neil Ga Gaiman. She's worked with all these people. Um, this book, though, examines classic science fiction and talks about why it's timeless. So if you want to know why books have survived... We can do another episode eventually later right. you, so you don't no. feel like you've been cheated. No, no, no. So, I am going to talk about Harlan Nelson. Har Good night, everybody! We'll see you next. You come You come back tomorrow night. The <laughs> <laughs> famous letter. You can, yeah. you come back tomorrow, tomorrow night. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Carson did the same thing. Um... Harlan Ellison did write a lot of fiction. Badly. Does write a lot of fiction. Badly. <laughs> Going to beat I you. don't know. That, it, that's an um, interesting idea. I don't know that it made a good movie. No, no. But So he worked with Asimov and adapted Asimov and made an iRobot, which is not the Will Smith version. He wrote tons of... Um, like I said, tons of fiction. About, that's another one. They get about 20-30% right. Um, no, I've got some of his books. Plane, I had some of his books on the table, but... Harlan Ellison, much like um, Hunter S. Thompson, is probably borderline brilliant. He's definitely brilliant, but also insane. Okay. Um, he yeah. did ride, uh, whereas uh, Hunter S. Thompson hung out with Hell's Angels. Uh, Ellison, who is, what, maybe a five-foot-four Jewish man? Oh, if he's, yeah, he might be five-four. He maybe joined five, a street five. gang in the 1950s a Hispanic street gang to do research for a What's book, that story? Um, which he wrote it's a fictional version of it called uh, Web of the City, um, but he also wrote some nonfiction. He wrote this book, which is my dream, uh, is to to watch every book he talk or watch the movies he talks about in here. He did a series of reviews, which were published on filmmaking, and what makes these different than just sitting down reading old Roger Ebert reviews is he literally starts tearing apart the entire concept. So his review of Star Wars, uh, his review of Empire Strikes Back, his review of... Uh, he had a real hatred of the Omen. Ray uh, Bradbury said it ended poorly. Have you ever read the... the Because Ray Bradbury went and wrote his own ending to it, mm -hmm. of how he thinks it should have been. If you get a chance, it's just quite brilliant, so, actually. Um, Harlan Ellison. It's very grandiose. And on the back of this, you can see him hanging out with uh, Sam Neill, Laird Malton, and that one actor fellow. Basically, it's some that they take the um, baby to the church and does God have to forgive? Say it's it's really good. Uh, uh, Harlan Ellison also though wrote a series of conversations about television. Yeah. Um, uh, the Glass Teat. And the I, other Glass Teat was. I read. Up. There's only two volumes. I've read both volumes of those, and they're fascinating. They're great. And they're very much of their time, not in the sense of Harlan's not a great writer, just simply because of what was on in the late 60s, early 70s when the books were coming out. Yes. So some of those shows... A lot of Brady Bunch? No, but well, a lot of Saturday morning cartoons. He loved Saturday morning okay. cartoons. Harlan also, I'm sorry, was famous for uh, nailing a lot of the starlets. Yes. If you oh, watch, you know a, that you you should watch Dreams with Sharp Teeth and uh, have yeah. Robin Williams talking about how he had more kitty. He got more. He got more. Uh, uh, yes, he uses the phrase. He got more kitty than uh, a litter box. Yeah, huh. uh, there is a famous photo of him where it's literally him and his typewriter writing, and there are literally women laying on his bed in the background. And he got up because he had a story idea. Yeah, he get up and somebody early, took a photo of it at seven a.m. to watch Saturday morning cartoons. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to, and I don't know if Sharon Tate slept with him, but I like. I just throw Sharon Tate out there, laying in his bed, go, hold on. 
Let's watch some cartoons. Um, but Harlan Ellison uh, has written histories of comic books. He's so he has done a lot of fiction. He's done a lot of nonfiction. The Essential Ellison, which is his essential works, quote unquote, is over fifteen hundred pages. He is still alive. He is still on occasion writing. Um, Does he, he do any more public appearances? No, he he actually has quit signing completely. He he says he wants to put forth what energy he has left to doing other things, so he stopped signing. Which is funny. Eating soup. He, he wants to take all of his energy. He, no, he's another one that works hard not to write. Um, well, and if you watch, Joe mentioned Dreams with Sharp Teeth. There's a documentary about him. Robin Williams is in it. Neil There's, Gaiman is in it. Yeah. Octavia Butler. It's got tons of people in it if you're into science fiction <laughs> and fantasy. Um, but they talk about, yeah, he, he, he is... Um, a book called uh, about his life and uh, um, a lit fuse. A lit fuse is the biography. He had talked for years about writing an autobiography. He backed down. He did, however, give somebody the permission to write the true autobiography uh, or the true biography of him. And for the first time ever, he said, you "Tell the truth." Um, and so this individual interviewed him but then went back and talked to people that he went to high school with that he did all of this Ooh, stuff with i'd like to hear um, some of his ex-wife stories because he's been married what five times yes susan his current wife and they've been married since the 90s um at <laughs> five times a charm if you watch the documentary he talks about and she's sitting there they're having dinner i think neil gaiman's there too and he talks about how they got in a fight once and uh he locked her out of the house naked well, there were tour buses going by and all that stuff. And he said, she's the only one I've ever had that can take that. So he is, um, I'm trying to think, there's another collection of his writings. Harlan Ellison's watching is about his films, The Glass Heat and The Other Glass Heat. And then there's another collection of his essays just on life. One of my favorite books, and what I will say about him is, even in his non, or even in his fiction, he normally does an introduction that has a lot of nonfiction. One of my all-time favorite pieces by him Speaking of Hunter S. Thompson and his love of uh, Nixon, and by that I mean the lack thereof, uh, in his book, Approaching Oblivion, which is actually HarlanAllisonBooks.com, says it's a book that everybody forgets. It's my, probably my favorite collection by him, and it's probably the first time I was in middle school when I read it. And it's the first time that an introduction actually just made me go, holy crap. Because uh, the introduction to that, it was written... Uh, it was originally, he sold the concept of being approaching oblivion and he was going to just basically recycle some stories. And the beginning of the, or in the introduction he talks about, he goes, but that was four years ago, post-Nixon time. And it, he wrote it, he started writing a lot after Kent State because mm -hmm. Kent State made him extremely upset. Um, I'd mentioned this before we started filming. Hunter S. Thompson and Harlan Ellison. They denied his admission? Um are not uh never worked together uh, a lot of people when hunter s thompson died a lot of people reached out to Harlan and going whatever did you ever but they ran in the same circle hunter s thompson's first publication was in revolver for gentlemen which was a competitor to playboy did they ever meet um harlan ellison actually and i can't find the exact quote but said he never met him but he they quoted each other some because harlan ellison recently quoted hunter s thompson uh, but he said... Um, It'd be like crossing the stream with two jackasses. I was say, and that's what he said. He was like, I've never met Harlan. We ran in similar circles because Harlan was an editor for Revolver. Revolver was the first one to buy Hunter S. Thompson's articles in 1961. And he said, we never ran together. 
He said, uh, we never ran into each other. He said, I admire a lot of what Hunter S. Thompson said. I do not think we would have got along well as individuals. And I would argue that that's probably... Literally a lovely tea party, wouldn't yeah. it? Oh, <laughs> would you show up for and that? And the other thing... throw Harry Dean in there? Yeah. Oh, the other thing that I will say, and it's a story the that we'll... and AK-47s. The story that we'll never get, because Harlan Austin said he's going to take it to his grave, but you can find old clippings about it. There was something that happened between Harlan Ellison and Frank Sinatra at a club. Harlan Ellison was, showed up in boots, uh, which I guess were alligator hide or something, and Sinatra commented sarcastically on them. And if you know anything about Harlan Ellison, the truth of the... He's quick to anger. Uh, very much so. Which goes back to some of the stories Joe and he's I He's always had. trying to prove himself. Um, what you think? Even though he's, he's very the much most award-winning author, Even living day, author he's trying to, to prove day. himself and try to... It probably, and we've talked about this before, probably if Harlan was in school today, he'd be medicated. Uh, they would have to. But him and Sinatra evidently fought. But uh, the lady that was covering it for the newspaper actually ended it and said uh, both gentlemen agreed that um, this, this needs to go no further. And so nobody knows the full story. And he's been asked that a thousand times and he refuses to talk about it. But if... Watch Dreams with Sharp Teeth. Read some of his nonfiction. Like I said, his analysis of movies, and I know we're talking about nonfiction, and we seem to circle back to movies. I can't imagine why. But the these analysis, the analysis that um, it's a mystery that gets done by Harlan Ellison. I love it because it does smothered and what the fuck. <laughs> well, it it jumps. <laughs> smothered, not smothered. 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 We's in Kentucky, sir. It's, Where nobody gets famous. It's, uh... The Colonel! Where at least four people laughed at Vanilla Ice as Mark Twain. Oh, anyway, Harlan Ellison... Cassius Clay left here, didn't do shit. His mama, his mama called him Cassius. I'm gonna call him Cassius. Clay. Um, I'm gonna call him Clay. Anyway. Uh, Abraham Lincoln. Harlan Ellison, read his... to go to Illinois. Read his fiction, yeah. but seek out his nonfiction too. Um... And once again, if you're interested in... They call Chicago a poor man's local down there, they do. <laughs> if you're interested in the history of science fiction, he also worked with... He was he himself a fan. Um, so he has stories on L. Ron Hubbard. He has stories on Ray Bradbury. Uh, he, he, also, he also actually... I mentioned last time he discovered... Uh, quote, helped discover she had the talent. Octavia Butler... Uh, but there's stories of him actually funding people who were trying to break into writing and break into movies and stuff like that, where he literally would loan them money because that's what people did. I for think him. we're running long on time. And he discovered oh, the magic land of Fraggle Rock. I'm sorry. Anyway, no, um, Harlan Ellison is quoted by Stephen King. He's quoted by a lot of people. If you read Dance Macabre, there's a section about Harlan there. He does write fiction, but his nonfiction and his commentary about media, about what that means, about Nixon, about all that stuff, is pretty compelling stuff. I just want to add one thing to his Harlan. Now, I will give James crap, and he can wax on for a while, but Harlan is a fascinating guy. Mm -hmm. I know we're talking about nonfiction. If you're in, if you think you should go out and read, uh, I, I, I need to... Uh, Screw, uh, I have no mouth and I'm a scream. I actually, you know what? No, screw it. Uh, repent. Repent harder, Quentin, cried the TikTok, TikTok man. TikTok man. Really go out and read it. It's a, probably one of the best science fiction short stories of all time. Just go out and check that out. 
And if you see us at these cons, and if you actually watch the show and you're into this, and you can come up and talk about this episode to either James or I, we will tell you our Harlan Ellison story. We have a couple of them. It's a good one. We have spent a weekend with him in, in, in Madison, Wisconsin. His last con. His Yeah, supposedly. And he did, it was, he did one more signing at a Star Trek convention. And James uh, dragged me to it, and I had a blast, so... Yeah, and yeah, we, but we uh, have we both have good stories and took some abuse. One was physical, one was verbal, and well worth it both ways. Yeah, because if you do, like I said, if if you've never seen it, even if you don't know who Harlan Ellison is, if you just want to see a man that, but you have to do it in person. Yeah. You have to ask us in person, and you have to bring up this episode, and then we'll tell you the story. Yeah, just and, to prove if, that you if, are watching. If, if you if you're or more listen, of a movie person, sorry. If you're more of a movie person, do see the documentary Dreams with Sharp Teeth because it's him hanging out with Robin Williams, Neil Gaiman, and all that stuff. And <laughs> all it, that stuff. It begins. The movie actually begins with, "Is it true that you sent a dead gopher to an editor?" And he goes, absolutely. Did you drive a dynamite truck? Yeah, they, the union workers went and do it, so I did it. Um, did you shove a fan down a, a, an elevator? No, that one's actually a lie. He did punch a producer in a meeting. He's a fascinating, passionate, and... He's batshit nuts, but he's a good writer. He's He is Hunter S. Thompson of fiction, I guess. But no, they, uh, they you never... You know, not really, because they Hunter, never, Hunter, you know... He wrote fiction, too. Well, well, no, it's not even that. It's just Hunter always partaked in substances and and Harlan, and Harlan is, is, is a, is a teetotaler. Yeah. So anyway, are we done? Um I that was gonna say mm-hmm. as far as other <laughs> It's okay, button. No, I as we wrap up books, I mean there's tons of other books that I we could have talked about fiction and I'm sure we'll come back and do it again. I, I was gonna say and we'll Chad just wants. I mean, to talk Chad's about, not coming back because Chad can't read. Chad just wants to talk about his garbage pail kid sticker collection, but they uh, are cards that just happen to be stickers. Um, you know, we probably could do a whole episode on '80s trade card and sticker card and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Cards um, that just happen to be stickers. But no, I. Uh, they are pieces of art. Let's end this. The audience have already tuned I would say, out. No, well, all I wanted to say was that I pick up books. I pick up probably at least one or they two books. You also pick up prostitutes, week. but you don't no. tell everybody. He picks up sticks. No, I don't pick he up never sticks. Picks up up sticks. Tell you what he <laughs> wanted to pick up. A check. Oh! I would if you buy me books. That's um, my F word. Sorry, Haley. I was gonna say no. I, I I buy books every week, and so I I have a real love of books. So this is the not of his children though. Do. They go wanting. <laughs> well, if they were more entertaining, like a book. Oh God, get us out of this episode. <laughs> Said the audience. Do the business. Do the business. All right. Business. So over in the left hand corner, subscribe if you're watching us on YouTube. If you're on right iTunes, hand sound, corner. Right. If you're in the left hand, hand corner, corner, you're not doing it's a damn over. thing other than clicking in James's if crotch. If you can't see a subscribe button and hate us know. that much, also on iTunes and SoundCloud, we need you to subscribe to all three. Please do that quickly. Do so quickly without remorse. It's a short story I wrote once. Was it publishing a book? Oh, God. Guess we won't be talking about it in an episode, then will we? I don't think I ever sent it off. Anyway. Tune in next week when we talk about Julia Childs and wonderful Southern TV shows. We 
could do cooking shows. I think That's I did a really bonehead. Joke last time I've never seen a cooking show. You've never seen a cooking I show. I mean, I, I, not enough to where I could talk about one for 40 minutes. Bye, everybody. Bye. Roll credits. Ooh, cookbooks will be next week. <laughs> it's a cookbook. It's a cookbook. How to serve man, man, so man, man. How to serve mans. <laughs> We're done. Serve mans. Hallelujah. Big sweaty it's mans. It's raining mans. Big sweaty mans. Hallelujah. Uh.